0: affiliate links, and that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention.
1: In coming to a retreat, whether you've just arrived or you've been here for the last four weeks, each of us in some way carries, as the Buddha did, our own questions about life and the mystery of being incarnated in the human body, this kind of wild thing that happened to us. In one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism, the Chinese government in 2009 banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. (laughs) According to a statement issued by the State Administration for Religious Affairs, the law which went into effect a year and a half ago strictly stipulates the procedure by which one is to reincarnate and is, quote, an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. This is true. So that's one way to approach our human (laughs) predicament, if you will. But there is a kind of question that perhaps in the shamanic tradition could be translated as the sacred question that we all carry in our way, the question of how to find happiness or how to find relief from struggle or to understand freedom or Love, or what it means to live in a wise way. In seeking liberation, the Buddha also had these profound questions. In particular, he was interested in the question of human suffering and the end of suffering, to find a path to true happiness. He was also interested in in the question of identity, of who are we? Who am I? Because there he was, born a kshatriya, in the warrior caste and a prince, and in the the caste system, which was quite rigid in India those days, the Brahmins and kshatriya, kshatriyas and Vaishnavites and sudras and so forth. But when he went out from the palace, as we all know in the story of the heavenly messengers, he saw an old person, a sick person, he saw his first dead body, he saw a corpse. And he wanted to know what freedom there was to be found, what nobility that wasn't limited by family or birth or race or caste or all the conditions he was born in. He was willing to give all that up to find out, well, who are we really? to find a kind of nobility that was independent of those conditions. And in our own way, we too seek to understand, seek to live with happiness or end the struggle and sufferings of our life, to understand who we are. I started one of the last books I wrote, some of you probably read this story, with the account of a temple in northern Thailand in Sukhothai that had a huge, old, and quite famous Buddhist statue. And as you know, in Burma and Thailand and those cultures, they're quite revered, and people go and make pujas and offerings. And this was kind of a folk statue, giant, made out of clay, painted. And, but because it had been there for seven, eight, nine hundred years, it was revered for its staying power. And so people went and they made offerings. And every hundred or two hundred years it would crack a bit, and then they would patch it up and repaint it. And this happened in the 1960s when I was there first. But because they had flashlights in this particular hundred-year thing, one of the young monks tried to look in the cracks to see how they made this thing, and this glint of gold shone out. And then he looked in another crack, and a little glint of this luminous gold light shone out, explored a little further, and discovered under the cracks in the clay was a Buddha statue that they uncovered that was the largest cast image, and really beautiful, of the awakened one made out of gold that had ever been uh, created in Southeast Asia. And now it's become a great pilgrimage place, But the monks and the caretakers of the temple understood that this golden Buddha had been covered with clay and lasted for all these years as a way to protect this image, this symbol, from marauding armies and regime changes and uh, all the kind of social disruptions that come periodically in any society. And in some way, this is a symbol of our own practice. As it says in the Buddhist text, luminous is this consciousness, is your own consciousness, your own true nature, but it is covered by the various states of fear and confusion of greed and so forth that color this consciousness. But your original nature, like that golden statue is luminous, free, shining. And this isn't something far away. It's the nature of consciousness itself, that which is listening to these words, that which is inhabiting the personality and body and conditions of your life. The awareness and consciousness that knows is in itself inherently pure. And therefore, said the Buddha, in many dialogues where he was confronted by people who said, you were a prince and now you're a beggar and I'm a Brahmin," and there was a lot of one-upmanship, and the, half these dialogues are little battles with people in the sutras. And he said, one is noble not by birth, not by caste or creed or race. Nobility is that which shines from the heart of a being, and if one acts in a noble way, that is the, that is the true... Um, expression of what nobility means. So I saw yesterday, or the day before, in this it was yesterday—in the Sunday Times magazine section an article entitled "The Tyron and the Tamale," um, and it was a, by a man who lives in Portland. And he had a bunch of car trouble. He'd borrowed cars and a blowout of a tire, a blown fuse, ran out of gas several times in the last two years. Um, and each time it happened, he was by the road trying to get help, and he said no one would help. The tow trucks would just cruise past me, or I'd get a ride to the gas station, and they wouldn't lend me a gas can, quote, for safety reasons, but they'd sell me a cheap plastic one without a top for 15 or $20, you know. And you know who came to my rescue all these times, he said? Immigrants. Salvadorian, Mexican, Ethiopian. Each time these folks would stop, he said, I had the tire blow out, I didn't have a jack, and this car pulls up with full of a family from Mexico. Doesn't even speak very good English. But, uh, you know, I show them the wheel, and he gets out his jack and starts to crank up the Jeep and help me and so forth. And then I'm working with him, I break his tire iron. No worry," he says, Donata, no problem. He gives it to his wife. She runs off to town and 15 minutes later is back with another tire iron. <sighs> and we finished the job. It was a lot because it was in the mud and filthy and sweaty. And she, his wife came out with a big jug of water. And I tried to put a $20 bill in his hands. He wouldn't take it. So I went up to the van and I slipped it to his wife, thinking maybe she would, you know. And then after I said my goodbyes, I'm walking back to the jeep. The daughter who spoke English calls out and says, Hey, have you had any lunch? I said no, so she runs up and hands me a tamale. Now this family, poorer than just about everybody else who on that stretch of highway, working in the orchards to pick, you know, fruit, where time is money, took a couple hours out of their day to help this strange guy on the side of the road where the people in tow trucks just cruise by. And they weren't done. I thanked them again, walked back to the car, opened the foil on my tamale. I was hungry. And what did I find? My $20 bill in there. (laughs) No, I ran back. Knocking on the van. The guy rolls down his window. He saw the 20 in my hand and said, He says, No, 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 por favor, por favor, please take. Then he searches really hard for English words. He smiles. He says, Today, you, tomorrow, me. And he laughed and he rolled up his window and his daughter waved and I just sat in my car eating the best tamale I have ever had and weeping. And in the months past, I've changed some tires, given rides to gas stations, once drove 50 miles out of my way to get a girl to an airport and I won't take a penny for it. And we hear a story like this and get touched by it because it touches that gold in us. It touches that beauty and that nobility. Um, And we long for it. We want to inhabit it and live it because it's the, the gift that we're born with. Now, I sat part of this retreat as well, along with Marie and Trudy. I had the privilege of sitting the first half of the February retreat and found it refreshing and cleansing and illuminating, and also hard work. You know, it's not that easy when you do it, right? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. And even though I can live at times with pretty good equanimity and sometimes mindfulness and a fair amount of metta, I also run around a bunch. It's my nature. And so when I sit and I stop, what I hit first are the hindrances, Tensions, stuff I'm carrying in my body, pains, you know about this. And then all the cares and concerns and fears and frustrations, all that stuff that, you know, that's just waiting when you sit down to kind of tell its story and get your attention. Have you noticed? (laughs) Especially those of you just arrived. You know, and you forget how hard it is. Go ahead, writes this Indian saint, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells and call out to the gods, but watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on the anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So it's not that easy because we're coming out of this stream of the culture, and here I'm sitting quietly, you know, and I know how to meditate, but it's still tough. It just is. And um, what to do with it. You know, all this stuff comes, and you don't fix it. The, this is not like a self-improvement game, because that's endless, right? You've tried that. Therapy, how long, right? I mean, it helps a little bit go to the gym, whatever. This is something deeper. So instead, you're mindful. You notice it. I did. You bow to it. You say, oh, God, here's that pain again. Here's the tension. You make space for it. You receive it as a gracious host, if you will. And you realize that this is just part of having human incarnation that some of the, it gets stuck in the body and the feelings are there and we get in conflict with things and it's how it is anybody not have that raise your hand you can go right <laughs> this is from Wilhammer stephenson a famous explorer of the pole north pole the oldest most widespread stories in the world are adventure stories about human heroes who venture into the myth countries at the risk of their lives and bring back tales of the world beyond humans, it could be argued that the narrative art itself arose from the need to tell your adventure. That a person risking their life in perilous uh, encounters constitutes the original definition of what's worth talking about. But having an adventure also shows that someone is incompetent, that something has gone wrong... An adventure is interesting enough in retrospect, especially to the person who didn't have it. (laughs) At the time it happens, it usually constitutes an exceedingly disagreeable experience. (laughs) So what do you do with this stuff that comes in the beginning? Because it is tough. You have to be dedicated, patient, kind, and steadfast. And over some days, it begins to settle. And when it does settle, in three days or six days or ten days or 15 days or whatever, as it did for me, then in its sweet time, the mind gets calmer and steadier and more present and contented, easier, more here in the present. All that stuff is there, but it sort of settles down. And then insight comes, understanding comes begins to open. Liberation begins to open. And that liberation that starts to open has different dimensions. It has both equally important. It has a universal dimension in which things show themselves as impermanent. The feelings, the views, the perspectives you cling to, they come and they pass away. I have a story here, I won't read the whole story, about a woman who hated to do walking meditation. Hated it. We negotiated on a retreat. Walk slower, take it in little bits, try not walking so much, you know. Hated it. Said, I just can't stand it. Finally I said, all right, there's only one solution. Give up sitting and only walk, and you'll find out why you're so resistant. So she did. She did. She sent, sent me this long note, She's, this IMS. I learned to walk. I went down to the lower walking room in the annex, and I thought I might figure out why I'd been so resistant, but no, circumstances taught me something else. I chose to walk down there because it's beautiful and quiet and small, and today it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could with boots on. <clears throat> well, I thought, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This man pounded his way through an hour and a half non-stop, except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried better. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I just wanted him to go and I wanted to kill the SOB. <laughs> I noted hatred, hatred. Then I just stood in the middle of the room and cried, the ocean of tears. Finally... I got to the point where I realized that whatever problem he had was his and not mine. And after that, I got quiet, and he was just sound on the ear. And so I walked and breathed, and he paced and pounded, and pretty soon it was all the same to me. His noise, my breath, the movement of my body, all arising and passing, and after an hour and a half or longer, he left. And then it was incredibly quiet, which was different but not as much better as I would have expected, mostly just different. I learned something from this walking, thank you, you know. So this is the universal part, where when you get through the layer of hindrances and you drop down to be present, you see the stories, the thoughts, the perspectives, and then they become just what they are, a thought, a story, a perspective a point of view, and they open somehow into emptiness. Or they open into the jhana factors, and you start to feel one-pointedness, rapture, happiness. These qualities start to grow, which happened for me. It was beautiful in the retreat. And from that, everything becomes clearly empty. I searched in vain for firm ground, said the Buddha, and I could not find a base that is changeless, for all is in flux and changes the reality. And more and more as you settle and get still, it's not just the stuff, but the sense of space that opens in the mind and heart. But of course, along with the universal, there is equally important, there is the, in this mystery of incarnation, there's the personal. And so... For some days, I would be resting in the space of awareness, not doing the jhana factors or emptiness so much. And instead, what would happen is that the patterns of personal life would begin to show themselves. The loneliness, the relationship stuff in my family, or to my body, or my daughter, or work things, you know that kind of stuff? those patterns and the thoughts and feelings about them. And if I stayed with them, I could sense them and even feel the roots. And this wasn't like the hindrances. This was like things that kept coming or that were important in my life. Now the hindrances were kind of quiet, but still this longing or this attachment or this fear or this conflict would show itself. As the poet Hafiz writes, Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deeply. Let it ferment and season you as few human or divine ingredients can. And so it would come, and I would feel into the root, well, what is the fear? What is the attachment? What is the holding or the confusion? What's the sense of self there? You know what I'm talking about. And this wasn't on the level of Hindrances. It was the level of deep presence. And I could feel the grasping or the need to be loved or respected or something needing to be forgiven. And I could release things. But of course, there was a little problem they would come back, (laughs) they got lighter. A man wrote to the IRS, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my taxes last year. Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return, I've enclosed a cashier's check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. Right? <laughs> and this is kind of how it works. It is, you know? You're not, like, well and done with stuff. You see it, you sense the identity, the grasping, the structure, you release it, you get somewhat free, you know, and then, whoops, you know, it's time for the next check. But what happens is that both these dimensions, when you drop beneath the hindrances, both the dimensions, the universal and the personal, which are really this mystery of incarnation, start to open up, and in them, different dimensions of freedom come. Now, with these dimensions, we can sense our practice developing, deepening, opening, cleansing. So there's a kind of development that happens. It's beautiful. But an equally important language is the sense that we are returning to our true nature. That as we let go and open, there's a space of awareness, what I call liberated attention, that knows what's present without sticking to it, that's gracious and free and timeless and open, and that's always here. We're not making it, we're, we're returning to it. In our own way, we're each seeking this freedom and this nobility of heart. We're each seeking the dignity of Nelson Mandela and the unshakable and beautiful spirit of Aung San Suu Kyi, who at this very moment, is speaking via Skype to a, a hall of a thousand students at Berkeley. My daughter called me just before I came here. She said, Dad, what are you doing? Aung Sang she 's at Berkeley doing human rights law. She said, Aung San Suu going to talk to us. I'll give you the link. You know, I said, I'm sorry, you can tell her I've got to talk tonight, you know. Um, but there we are. We, we, we resonate with the magnanimity and Dignity of Nelson Mandela after all he went through, of the spirit of Aung San Suu Kyi, and we want this for ourselves. And while this dignity is our true nature, we need reminders. We get lost in some way, and that's why we practice. Otherwise, without practice, life is like a boat without a rudder, and we can get overwhelmed in the speed and the confusion and the consumerism of the culture and overwhelmed by the continuing warfare and racism and and environmental destruction and all those things, they overwhelm us. So we come to practice, we begin to practice, and we make a ground for our practice as we started, a ground of generosity to one another, a ground of virtue. And then, based on the non-harming of virtue and this ground, we turn ourselves, we turn our attention, turn ourselves to the awakened heart to remind ourselves, to return to it, to cultivate, to discover this spaciousness and luminosity and dignity that is our true nature. Now, to support this opening, this beautiful opening for us Together this month, we will be giving teachings on the awakened heart and mind over the course of these next four weeks. And we will draw the teachings from the Factors of Enlightenment, the Brahma Viharas, and the spiritual faculties, which are all descriptions of the awakened mind and heart. And we'll take the qualities that are there and the factors of enlightenment, the, the Brahma Viharas and the spiritual faculties, and we'll use them to remind you of what's possible, and more than that, of who you really are. And offering these teachings is a great tradition. They're called a protection against adversity. And an invitation to heal, and an invitation to awaken. So that when Mahakasapa, one of the great disciples of the Buddha, was sick, well, I'll tell you this. Someone went to see the Buddha and asked about the factors of enlightenment. And he said, These factors of enlightenment are conducive to awakening and liberation, just as in a peaked house all the rafters go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join in the peak. Even so, the practitioner who cultivates and makes much of these seven factors of wisdom slopes upward toward liberation, inclines toward freedom, experiences nirvana. So, in one of these texts, the Buddha was living in Rajgir, in the squirrel's feeding feeding ground, and at that time, the Venerable Mahakasapa, who was a great disciple, living in the Pipali cave, became sick, stricken with severe illness. And then the Buddha himself, rising from his quiet seat at eventide, visited the Venerable Mahakasapa, took a seat next to his bed, and spoke to him thus... Well, Kasapa, how is it with you? Are you bearing up? Are you enduring? Do your pains lessen or increase? No, blessed one, I am not bearing up, and I am barely enduring, for the pain is very great, and there is no sign of the pains lessening, but rather they are increasing. Kasapa, then, listen. For the factors of enlightenment expounded by me when cultivated and developed, are conducive to full realization, perfect wisdom and nirvana. And what are these factors? Mindfulness, Okasapa, when cultivated and well-developed, conduces to realization and liberation. Investigation of Dharma, Okasapa is conducive to liberation. Energy is conducive to liberation and realization. Rapture is conducive to to realization and liberation. Calm, conducive to realization, liberation, concentration, equanimity, O Kasapa. And as the Buddha spoke, the Venerable Kasapa rejoiced on these words, welcoming them. And immediately then, the Mahakasapa rose from the illness and the ailment that he had suffered from vanished. I hope you're all better now, by the way. (laughs) But it gets wilder, because in the Mahakunda Sutta, at this time the Buddha himself was ill. And then the Venerable Mahakunda went to sit by the side of the Buddha and recited to the Blessed One these same factors of enlightenment, and the Buddha's grievous illness vanished. So there's a kind of tradition about this, these teachings and we'll see how it works over this month, right? But I'm actually rather delighted that we get to work with them. So let's name them, and then over the weeks we can expound them, if you will. They're the factors of enlightenment that I just named. They're the four brahmaviharas of metta and compassion and joy and equanimity. And then the awakened heart is expressed in the five spiritual faculties of faith and energy and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. Mindfulness, the gateway to liberation. Mindfulness, Buddha said to all those around him, this practice, this capacity of mindfulness is the invitation to, is the doorway to liberation. There is nothing, I declare, more helpful than mindfulness, more liberating. And I remember John Kabat-Zinn, my good friend and colleague, years ago when he started mindfulness-based stress reduction in the basement of the medical school in Massachusetts, he went to Grand Rounds and he said, give me your worst patients. Give me the ones that surgery and medicines and things can't help you, don't know what to do with intractable pain, you know, chronic this and that. Send them down to me. I'll take care of them. Because, as he said to me, a little aside, he wouldn't have said this because he's a very, um, there's a lot of humility. But he said, I knew I had the I had the biggest medicine of all. I had the medicine of mindfulness itself, the big guns, which allows whoever comes, to see things the way they are and to find a freedom no matter what their circumstance. It's a completely different kind of medicine. And this is the medicine of mindfulness. And then mindfulness in the factors of enlightenment is joined by Dhamma-Vichaya investigation, this beautiful quality of seeing for yourself. Because the Buddha's enlightenment, as it said, was good for him. But you have to become the Buddha. A man who'd studied much in the schools of wisdom finally died in the fullness of time and found himself at the gates of eternity. An angel of light approached him and said, "'Go no further, O mortal, "'until you've proven to me your worthiness to enter into paradise.'" But the man answered, Just a minute now. First of all, can you prove to me this is a real heaven and not just the wishful fantasy of my disordered mind undergoing death? And before the angel could reply, a voice from inside the gates shouted, Let him in. He's one of us. <laughs> and so, conjoined with mindfulness, is this extraordinary capacity to see what's true for yourself, to inquire, to discover suffering, its causes, its end, you know for yourself. But it also requires the next factor of enlightenment, of energy or effort. And I remember a person on retreat, a man coming who'd suffered a lot. He had very bad chronic pain. He had a degenerative disease where his bones and joints were falling apart. His father had Alzheimer's and he was trying to take care of his father. His sister had lost Her job was unemployed and living with him. And he would sit with all this stuff. And he said, you know what helped me? He said, I would sit and I would just hear this voice inside that said, courage, courage. And the effort or energy that's required in this practice is really simple. It's the effort or the energy to be present for what actually is the courage to be present. And when I was in Palestine, with all these things that are happening in the Arab world, a couple of years ago, visiting and working with some of the peace groups that I met there, um, there's that huge and rather terrible wall between Israel and Palestine that often goes into the or uh, the olive groves and divides the Palestinian vi- villages and so forth. The security wall looks like San Quentin. It's twenty feet high, terrible. And on the Palestinian side, there's a lot of graffiti. You know, one place where the olive grove was was uh, cut down, and the wall, you know, cut these people off. The children group these huge paintings of the olive grove and said, you can cut down the trees, but we know the trees are there still. The trees are still in our heart or something like that in Arabic. that's beautiful. Anyway, to me, one of the most moving images was this 15 or 20 foot high image of the bird of peace, the peace dove with a little um, olive branch in his mouth. He's quite large. You can see the car down in the corner here of the picture. But the thing that's interesting about this dove is that he's wearing a flak jacket. He's wearing a bulletproof vest, you know. And this is really the picture of the courage, courage to sit here and say, yes, this too, and still continue to do it. The right energy or effort, not to make something happen, but to be present. And then there's rapture and joy, because we can get into the practice and spiritual life as a grim duty, You know, and some of you, I know this, are quite loyal to your suffering. And it's okay. You have that relationship, you know, but um, it's not what liberates. We need to meet it, bow to it, honor it, and so forth. This from Alice Walker. She writes, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. People think pleasing God is all God cares about. But any fool living in the world can see it's always trying to please us back. And there is something about allowing joy, allowing beauty, allowing well-being and rapture and happiness, and we'll talk more about it, to grow in you that brings awakening. Calm, factor of enlightenment. Steadiness, but also spacious, ease relaxing. I mean, where are you going here? You know where you're going. Nowhere, right? (laughs) Down to the dining hall and back up. I mean, if you want to get literal about it, you ain't going anywhere. Half our life is spent trying to find something to do with the time we've rushed through life trying to save, right? Or from Lao Tzu, nature does not hurry, yet everything is accomplished. You feel that from the Tao? What am I doing? Nothing. I'm letting life rain upon me. And that's really what you're invited to do here, to step outside of time. And things become calm, Ajahn Chah called it, sitting at the side of a still forest pool, letting the mind Quiet, just being present for the animals that come and go, the changing of the seasons. Let your mind be like a still forest pool. Amazing things will go, will come, will appear, will vanish, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha, he says. And so the invitation is to find this in yourself, to allow it to happen. And it will. Breathing, you calm the body and mind. Sitting and walking, you th- calm then there's concentration. And to deepen beneath the layer of hindrances, mindfulness is coupled with concentration, with a steadying of the mind. And it takes some work, actually, to get concentrated, a a kind of tending, not in a striving way, but with a kind of balance, You've got to feel your way. You work some and you relax a little more. It is the tuning of the instrument. But you give yourself over and over to a step, to a breath, to the cup of tea, more and more, and the mind flops around like the fish, and you dedicate yourself over and over, little by little. And over some days or weeks, as you do, the mind becomes steadier and more concentrated. As Naomi Shihab Nye writes, the Arabs, and I think of the Bedouins and their hospitality, the Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, where he's headed. That way he'll have strength enough to answer, or by then you'll be such good friends you don't care. It may take you three days or six days or nine days, whatever, to tend and befriend your breath, your steps, the experiences moment by moment. But as you do, and if you do, and when you do, things get steadier and more concentrated. It is a kind of work, but it's also a labor of love. It's a labor of tending. And then there comes equanimity this beauty of the mind finding a a balance with what arises. The mind becomes like space or a mirror that allows for things. It is the natural space of consciousness. William Butler Yeats, We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us, that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet, our stillness. We can make our minds so like still water. And this equanimity is the balance, is the mirror within which things, experiences, joys, sorrows, plays, game, blame, arise and pass, And the spaciousness says, yes, this too. Now, these factors of enlightenment, since we're talking about the awakened heart, are joined with a few more qualities, because they overlap a lot. They're joined with the Brahma-Viharas. Two of the Brahma-Viharas, we've already talked about joy, rapture. Just think the laughter of the Dalai Lama. Equanimity. When you realize the truth that everything changes, says Suzuki Roshi, and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. So joy and equanimity are Brahma-viharas, but they're also qualities of enlightenment. And with them comes metta. I'm doing metta Every day, we're doing the Metta Sutra every night, like a mother holding her beloved child, radiating boundlessly through the world above and below and in every direction. And these tremendous blessings that come from Metta. And yes, it grows in us, we cultivate it, we tend it, but also it is born in us, it is innate. And so Barbara Kingsolver writes a true story about a group of nomads who live in the mountains of western Iran, the Lore tribe. And they were up in the mountains tending the fields. And there was one young girl, nine or ten years old, who was put in charge of the young children. And she started running back after a while. And she said, One of them is gone. She's frightened. It was only a year and a half. This little boy seemed too small to walk far away, but she was tending the other kids and he disappeared and everyone became completely upset. You can imagine the parents, they couldn't even believe it. They went back, they looked under the hiding places in the yurt, everywhere where they lived, but he was gone. The whole village circled around them and became frightened. You can imagine when a child disappears, especially out in the wilds where they lived. And they searched everywhere. They searched every hut in the village, turned everything upside down, and then it got dark and cold, hopeless. He's nowhere. Could he survive out? It was the mountains. And then a bear, someone said. And everyone said, no, not a bear. Don't say that. Are you mad? And early the next light, they were out again. Someone sent to the next village. They couldn't find him, and then they organized a party to climb the stony mountains and look in the caves. Another night passes. The mother weeps. The father's face becomes drawn. And they say, we have to go into the caves. In the name of heavens, five kilometers. How could a little boy go that far? He just took his first steps on Midsummer's Day. Tiny little feet. But there they go, a group of men up through the acorn fields beneath the oaks, into the high mountains and the caves. No one speaks. Wild bears, pigs. And at the mouth of the fourth cave they enter, they hear a voice. Definitely a cry. A child. Cautiously they look in the darkness, and ominously they smell bear. The boy is in there crying, alive, and in the half-light in the cave, They walk in so slowly. They see the animal, not a dark hollow in the cave, but a dark, round-shaped, thick-furred, quiescent she-bear lying against the wall. And then they see the child with the bear curled around him, protecting him from these fierce intruders. And somehow, they get the child from the bear. She says, I don't know how they did it, I went back through the news sources and I tried to find out. But there he was, alive, unscarred, perfectly well after three days, well fed, smelling of milk. The bear was nursing the child. Now, what does this mean? How is it possible that a huge, hungry bear would take a pitifully small, delicate human child to her breast rather than rip him into food? But she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating, so she must have had young of her own somewhere, possibly died. So that she was driven by the pure chemistry of maternity to take this small, warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. You can read this story and say impossible, even though many witnesses have sworn it's true. Or you could read this story and think of how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places. And think of the unconquerable force of a mother's love. The fact of the DNA code that we share with so many other beings. You could think of all that and say, of course, the bear nursed the baby. He was crying from hunger, and she had milk. Small wonder. But the miracle of Loristan is genuine, and if you venture onto the information highway with a good search engine and propose Kayan, Iran, bear. You will find this tiny, remarkable note in the history of humanity and bears. Metta. We need it. It's married to mindfulness. Without it, mindfulness doesn't have heart. It's, we need to wed the mind and heart together. And these qualities are our awakening. Metta and, of course, the fourth Brahma-Vihara compassion, which this story leads us to, but in a different way. Donations for the Haiti earthquake poured into the American Red Cross after so many images on our television screens and so much concerned. But nothing stood out in the American Red Cross Donation Center like the coins and crumpled dollar bills that spilled from one envelope. The gift, $14.64, came from the pockets of homeless people at a downtown Baltimore shelter with the note, we're worried about our brothers and sisters in Haiti. It is innate in you, in the mother bear, in the homeless. It doesn't matter who we are. As beings, the love, the compassion, the connectedness, and the freedom of heart is the gift you were born with. And the spiritual faculties, three of them we've already talked about, energy, mindfulness, and concentration, the spiritual faculties add these two qualities with it, faith, to feel and sense in these words that really reflect your own heart, that this is in you that not only is it possible for you, that it is who you are, your birthright, your nobility. And no matter how broken you may feel at times, how afraid, how lost, as Rumi says, ours is not a caravan of despair. Or Helen Keller, who writes, although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it, which is magnificent and is what our incarnation offers to us. And Henry David Thoreau puts it so simply, because I see this work in some ways as planting the seeds in the garden of the heart that will grow each breath, each step, the, the, the tending, the presence He says, "'Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders.'" And we're planting with our faith the most beautiful seeds, the seeds of wakefulness, the seeds of courage, the seeds of clarity, investigation, the seeds of steadiness, the seeds of compassion and love, these qualities that we'll be speaking of and inviting and reminding over the course of this month. And from them the mysterious quality of wisdom arises, the capacity to see this mysterious, evanescent incarnation anew, and not the small stories that we have about it, but the vast emptiness and beauty that remakes itself in every moment, as Kensi Rinpoche, the great Tibetan Lama, said, "Look, mind creates both samsara and nirvana. Yet there's not much. There's nothing much to it. It's just thoughts. Once you recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive you." And if you give yourself to this practice, and you will in your way, as you give yourself to this practice, Mara will appear. That's Mara's job. Mara always comes. Bodhi tree, Burma, Thailand, spirit rock, Mara gets around. It's just, how you know, fear will come, doubt will come, distraction, your pains and your pleasures, tough times, ecstasy will come. It will come. All of this, Mara will appear, beautiful things will come, difficult ones. And as you give yourself, as you stay steady and present, again and again finding your balance, it will open. And what will open is your own heart and mind, this luminous, true, beautiful nature that is who you really are. The world is full of divinity and strangeness. Science stops where all humans do at the doors of birth and death. The scientist knows no more than you or I why a seed remembers the oak of 20 million years ago and why dust acquires the form of a woman. Or how consciousness can behold a rainbow in space and time. We haven't yet solved the secret of a single name upon the earth. and We may try to pluck the nymph from the river, but we won't pluck the river from ourselves. There are sacred places everywhere. The world is our holy grove where we wander, hunting for the tree of awakening under which we already live. And this retreat... And this practice of awakening is the invitation, you under your tree of enlightenment, you under your own Bodhi tree, to see the hills and the change of the seasons, the rhythm of your breath, the appearance and disappearance of thoughts and perceptions and feelings, the, the rivers that make up life come and go, and to find that timeless and beautiful heart that is who you are, and rest in it and dwell in it and inhabit it and let it become more and more the gift that you can be and that
0: you can bring to all you touch. Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support, and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.